Okay, well, uh, we'll now begin uh, the message today. There we are, Noah's flood, mercy and judgment. And what I'm going to do is going to pick uh, some sections out from Genesis chapters 5 to 9. Now, if you know your scriptures, you're going to say, hang on, Genesis 5 is the genealogy. Um, and I might leave now uh, because... Uh, not sure about genealogies. Well, I'm going to start there and pick some points out as we, we go through. Um, the genealogy in Genesis 5 is very revealing for a number of reasons. Uh, it follows the same pattern all the way through. For instance, of Adam, it says, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Yes, you did hear that correctly. And he died. And uh, there is a feature that follows through. It follows the uh, genealogy all the way from Adam through to N- Noah. Rather than read it all, there you are, there's the ages uh, that they lived on this earth. Adam 930, Seth 912, Enosh 905, Kenan 910, Mahalel 895, Jared 962, Enoch 365 with an asterisk. I'll tell you why the asterisk's there in a minute. Methuselah, that's the longest, 969, the oldest man that ever lived, according to scriptures, Lamech 777, and Noah, if you flick over to Genesis 9, you can find he lived 950 years. Now, this immediately causes scepticism in a number of quarters, and many people think, oh, well, it can't really mean that, it must mean something else, because the ages, well, look, they look at least 10 times what we would expect to live today. I mean, David's time, it was three score years, or three score years and 10. Now, For sure, I believe that those ages are as they say they are. That's what I believe. That's what it says. Um, The pre-flood environment would have been far better than the environment we experience now. But if you look at the scientists who study creation, the Bible believers, they believe that probably uh, the explanation is also to do, and probably more to do long-term with genetics, and that there would have been a longevity gene uh, before the flood, And after the flood, genetic mutations and deterioration would effectively have switched it off. And you get back to the ages, went down quite rapidly to more what we expect today. What you wouldn't pick out, uh, just looking at it and reading the genealogy, is the overlap. And it surprised me, I found this out quite recently. Take Noah's father, Lamech. Adam was still alive when Lamech was born. That's how much overlap there is between those particular patriarchs. I'm going to pick out two of them. Let's start with the asterisk, Enoch, who I believe is the first recorded prophet in the Bible. Uh, One of his prophecies is actually recorded in Jude, the book of Jude, the second last book of the New Testament. It says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, so Jude knew his scriptures, prophesied about rebellious men it's talking about, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. This is a prophecy from Enoch to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them. And it goes on. And it's talking about the time of the second coming, the day of the Lord. He's gone right beyond the first coming to the second coming and talking about when the Lord Jesus will return with his angels to judge. Now, Enoch was an extraordinary man. I mean, it says he walked with God. Now, we all walk with God, but I think the, the phrase there for him meant that he was in a very, very close fellowship with the Lord. Um, It says he walked with God in Genesis 5, and he was not, for God took him. In other words, he didn't die. He was translated direct to heaven. The only other person uh, recorded in Scripture that we know of that happened to was Elijah. 
Elisha saw him taken up, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, as he was taken up alive to heaven. Uh, those two. But it happened to Enoch, the righteous prophet, uh, was taken up. Now, um, Hebrews says uh, about him that um, uh, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So I think probably pleased God even more than the rest of believers. He was just an extraordinary man. Um, So being a prophet, you'd think he'd choose his son's name carefully, wouldn't you? And he did. Don't meet many Methuselahs around these days. What does it mean? Well, it's extraordinary. His name means his death shall bring. Or colloquially, when he's dead, it shall be sent. And what it means was that that man, the year he died, God would send judgment upon the world with Noah's flood. And you can actually prove that from the scriptures. If you take those verses that are up there, Genesis 5 and 7, just look at them. Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son called Noah. Uh, Noah, in Genesis 7, was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth or came upon the earth when they arrived. Add them together, done it for you, 187 plus 182 plus 600, 969 years. Bottom verse, the days of Methuselah were 969 years. So, this prophet was inspired by God to name his son. When he dies, it will happen. And in the year he died, that is when the flood actually came. Now, I think that's amazing testimony to the grace and mercy of God. God always gives an opportunity for repentance and always gives an opportunity to show his mercy before he judges. And this is what he did here. So since he chose Methuselah to be, as it were, the ticking clock, isn't it amazing that he was the man that lived more than anyone else on this earth? Shows how gracious the Lord was. And Peter, when he was addressing people who uh, we're talking about those who scoff at the second coming. Oh, no, it's not going to happen. Everything goes on as it's always been. Peter said the following. It's the same message about the Lord's return. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, that's patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when people ask you, why is God not taking away the evil in the world? He will but he's given as much time for people to repent as possible. Now, before I leave the genealogies, now, those of you who were here at a carol service some years ago that I uh, uh, led from the the little 10-minute slot from the front here will have seen this before, but some of you won't. There is the genealogy summarised from Adam through to Noah in Genesis 5. It's repeated in 1 Chronicles 1. And I put down the Hebrew translated to English, meaning. Now, you will all know that Adam's name means man. Seth means appointed, Enosh, mortal, Kenan, sorrow, Mahalel, Mahalalel, the blessed God, Jared, shall come down. This is the Hebrew meanings. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, we've already learned, his death shall bring. Lamech, the despairing. And Noah, his name means rest or comfort. You might say, well, so what? Well, look at it closely. It is the gospel. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. All right, what is our lot on the earth since the fall of Adam? 
We all sin. We all die. We all have trouble. We're all groaning, waiting for perfection to come in eternity. Man's appointed mortal sorrow. But you've got the incarnation. The blessed God shall come down. And he did, didn't he? Jesus came in the flesh. And what did he do? He taught that his death on the cross shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Now, just look at that. Do you think it's an accident? Just speaks to you incredibly of the inspiration of the scriptures, doesn't it? I didn't work that out for myself, by the way. I got it first from a Bible teacher called Chuck Missler, but other Bible teachers have pointed that out. Now, let me just read a little bit of uh, Genesis chapter 6 to you. That's the lead up to the flood. And um, I'll pick out a couple of sections here that need some explanation. Let me just read verse 1 first. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the first of the earth, on face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for it is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now from the time this word was spoken, there'll be 120 years till the flood. It then goes on. There were giants. Now, the proper translation in the Hebrew is Nephilim, and the name means the fallen ones, or sometimes people say those who fall on others with violence. I think both meanings is there, but the fallen ones. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the doors of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, so the question is, who were the sons of God? Well, often when you're trying to interpret Scripture, the best guide to Scripture is Scripture elsewhere. And Job, three times in that, probably the oldest book written in the Bible, uh, refers to the sons of God. Since Job 1.6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. There you are. They're angels. And in this particular case, they are fallen angels. Um, and I know it sounds extraordinary to us, but what it says is that some of the angels rebelled and committed gross sin. They broke the boundaries of God's creation, deliberately rebelled against God. And what they did is they uh, produced children, they married and produced children by some of the women of the earth. And these were the fallen ones, the Nephilim. You might say, well, surely angels can't do that. There's a lot we don't understand about angels. Read Genesis 18, you can see that they can eat and drink. And this is simply what the scriptures say. And it produced a race, the Nephilim, the fallen ones. Um, and when it says that they were the mighty men of old, men of renown, it doesn't mean it in a good way. Mighty men in a violent sense and renowned in a notorious sense. And it then goes on to say that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you have the mischief of the fallen angels, you have the corruption into the human race, then you have the wickedness of mankind anyway. It had gone down rapidly since Cain had killed Abel. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry I've made them. But it then goes on to say, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I'll move on to verse 13. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, 
for the earth was filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. But before that, it also says of Noah, as well as the fact he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he was a just man, perfect in his generations. Now, what does that mean? Oh, by the way, on the fallen angels, if you think, hang on a minute, I'm still thinking about that, they're mentioned in uh, 2 Peter 2, as being locked away, these angels of sin, delivered in chains of darkness, reserved for judgment in an area of Hades called Tartarus, because their sin was so wicked. And Jude also refers to the fact that they're in chains because they left their proper abode. But there was hope. God had found a man who listened to him, who was humble, and that man was Noah. He wasn't perfect. He needed saving like the rest of us. If you know your passages here, Genesis 9, unfortunately, after the flood, Noah at one point got paralytically drunk and was lying naked. So he he had mistakes, but he was a man who humbled himself and walked with God. Um, Perfect in his generations, I think partly means he was uh, not corrupted by the fall of the Nephilim. It's interesting, by the way, when Uh, God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel and he identifies three incredibly righteous men. The three God chooses are Daniel, Job and Noah. So interesting that. He was a righteous man. Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. He didn't get any converts, but that wasn't his fault. God waited with patience in his days. Also says in Hebrews 11 that he saved his household because of his godly fear. So there you are. The flood's about to come. Uh, but there's been opportunity of repentance. As long as Methuselah was living, there was time to repent. When his heartbeat stopped, there was no longer time. You can work out, and, and scholars do this, looking at data, of, for instance, about Noah's three sons, uh, that it probably took about 70 years for Noah to build the ark. So it's not a quick job. And then Noah and his family of eight, so Mr. and Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives entered the ark. And God brought to them a pair of every animal, that's yet all animals, but actually seven of the clean animals. Some say seven pairs. It depends on the translation there. Let's just say seven. Noah brought them to them. They went on the ark. Now, I haven't got time to go into all of this, but some of you might say, oh, come on, how could they fit on the ark? I suggest you go to Creation Ministries International, type it in, creation.com, and type in. You'll get some fantastic answers from scientists who are creationists. By the way, the first ship bigger than the Ark, if you look at its dimensions, seems to be Brunel's Great Eastern in 1858. So that's how big it was. And engineers say it was technically very stable because of its dimensions. What about, God didn't say bring every species onto the Ark, it's every kind. So this word kind seems to be related to what could breed together. So you'd had one dog kind, a pair of dogs, and from the genetic variation built within them, you'd have got dogs, domestic dogs, foxes, wolves, and coyotes. The horse kind, as well as horses that we understand, you'd have had zebras and donkeys would have uh, developed from them. Um, The creationist researchers have looked at this. We tend to think of big animals, don't we? Elephants and hippos and what have you. But it's reckoned that only 11% of those that went on the ark creatures were larger than sheep. This gives you an idea. Most creatures are quite small. Um, it's been calculated the ark could take 100,000 sheep. It was that big, had three levels. 
but the creation scientists say, looking at kinds, it probably only needs to take 16,000 creatures, so plenty of room. The flood. Fountains of the great deep broke up. The Earth's crust broke up in a number of areas, and these underground reservoirs of water broke forth on the Earth. The floodgates of Hepan opened 40 days of rain, and it was a full 150 days later before eventually um, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, all that time, the flood, it was reckoned Noah and his family were on the ark 370 days. They had to work out when it was dry enough. And he first sent out a raven, which, you know, didn't come back. Sent out a dove, which came back straight away. Sent him out a week later. The dove came back with an olive leaf. First sign that things were beginning to sprout. There was a bit of wet ground beginning to appear. And a week later, the dove went again and didn't return. And at this point in uh, Genesis 8.1, it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean God had forgotten about them. Remembered in the scripture there means he particularly put his focus to take action for their benefit at this point. And he sent a wind upon the earth, but there are other changes that helped the flood drain that we'll come back to. Now, I wrote an article quite recently for a magazine called Prophecy Today. If you typed in Noah's flood, you'd find it. And Graham's actually put a version of this kindly on the blog. Because I need to tackle, I think, something. Apparently, a majority of pastors now, evangelical pastors, believe that Noah's flood was local or, or regional, that it wasn't global. So I'm going to tackle this, because categorically, I believe the scriptures teach it was a worldwide flood. It wasn't a regional flood. Those who take the regional viewpoint or the local viewpoint, it really is to try and fit it in with the latest uh, evolutionary theories of science, the Earth being uh, 4.6 billion years old, fossils from dead creatures that lived before Adam and Eve, whereas the flood account would imply that most fossils, vast majority, are a result of the flood. So it's a, an attempt to try and fit in with uh, evolutionary science. And by the way, not all scientists believe in the general theory of evolution. When they say the regional flood. Uh, mostly they say Mesopotamia. The name Mesopotamia means between the two rivers, being the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's mostly modern-day Iraq. And they say, well, that's where we think there was a flood. And um, let me give you five sets of reasons why I think that is not true, why I think the flood was worldwide. Let's just move on. Um, first of all, the language. Let's just take that passage there, Genesis 7. Anybody reading it without preconceptions would conclude the flood is worldwide. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills and the whole heaven were, killed, were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upwards. That's seven metres above the hills and mountains. And they were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Notice the phrase towards the beginning there, under the whole heaven. When this is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to the whole earth. For instance, in Job 41, the Lord actually talks about everything under the whole heaven is mine. It didn't mean just the Middle East. He meant the whole caboodle. Okay, 
Now, some say, now, come on, Brian, Mount Everest is 8,849 metres high. You must be joking to think there was enough water to cover Mount Everest. Well, what the scientists, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, what the scientists have read about the creationists say, look, it doesn't say the mountains were covered at their present height. It says the mountains were covered at the height they were at the beginning of the flood, and they were much lower. And after the flood, as the flood came to an end, there were huge geological upheavals. In fact, they started with the breaking up of the fountains of the Great Deep. Fantastic movement of the tectonic plates, forcing the mountains and the hills up to their present height. There were huge changes. I'll give you another verse about that in a minute. And it's interesting, Mount Everest at its top is marine, get that, marine limestone. And at its peak, there are fossils. What are the fossils of? Well, some of them are of sea-bottom-dwelling crinoids. Crinoids are called sea lilies. They were related to sea urchins and starfish. So they were forced up from the seabed. So um, is there any other evidence of these huge changes? Well, look at this. Psalm 104. I believe this is talking about what happened with the flood and afterwards. You covered it, that's the earth, with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. And then they have to drain, don't they? It has to be dry land for Noah to come out. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight the waters. The mountains rose. As they rise, there would have been drainage into what became our seas and oceans. The valleys sank down. Huge tectonic changes to the place you appointed them you set a boundary that they, that's the waters, may not pass so that it might not again cover the earth. And it's interesting, if you flattened the earth to a smooth sphere now, uh, the water over it would be enough water in the oceans to cover it 2,686 metres deep. By the way, you could sink Mount Everest into the Marianas Trench in the ocean uh, with a couple of thousand metres to spare. There's a lot of water. So that's the first reason. Language. If you're reading it, you think, well, this is worldwide. Second reason. God made a covenant with Noah and the animals, saying unconditionally, I will not destroy the whole earth with a flood ever again. And you know what the sign of that covenant was, don't you? That, that sign, by the way, has been hijacked for other purposes, but its original meaning and its present meaning whenever I see a rainbow is God's promise, God's covenant. Um, let me point out, Bangladesh, for instance, has once, was once covered 80% with water, gets a lot of flooding. There are huge local and regional floods. If the flood was local or regional, God broke his covenant many times. Can't be so. Secondly, um, thirdly rather, if it was a regional or local flood, why build a massive ark? They were on it 370 days. You could have just said, no, I want you to go on a journey for a year, get well out of here. True. What about the birds and what about the animals? They could get away. Many of them could migrate. One of my favourite birds. There you go. Most of those swallows come into us from southern Africa in the summer. Well, they'd have no problem getting away from a regional flood, would they? So birds um, and creatures could have migrated. So that proves it was worldwide. They had some to survive. Fourth reason, the, the scriptures not only teach that we're all descended from Adam, and therefore we all die, uh, but it also teaches in Genesis 10, we're all um, descended from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. For instance, the Semites, the Jews and the Arabs, are descended from Shem. That's what the scriptures teach. And they were on the ark. 
And then an important one, and relevant to the future, the Bible makes the direct parallel between the worldwide flood and the worldwide coming judgment. The coming judgment is not a regional judgment. Peter again, talking about these scoffers, talking about, ah, it's all going to continue as it always has. There's no second coming. Nah, just don't worry about it. Where is the promise of his coming, they say? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, but this they willfully forget, that the word, of God, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So there is a future judgment, global. Jesus talks about this, Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, Jesus said, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. In other words, carrying on as if there's no God, there's no judgment for sin. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so, says Jesus, it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. So the flood story is very relevant to us in terms of um, understanding much about the Lord and much about the Scriptures. And I just want to finish picking out four or five brief points uh, that I've not mentioned. There's so much. You could do a whole series on Genesis 5 to 9, such a fabulous portion of Scripture. Um, Sadly, today, there's the tendency to say, ah, Genesis 1 to 11 is just sort of poetry. You don't really need to take it as it is. How many were saved? Come on, somebody tell me. Eight. Eight. Thank you. Eight were saved, as I've been through already. Now, eight in the Bible, you can prove this in a number of ways, uh, stands for new life, new beginnings, and resurrection. Um, Matthew 28, 1, Jesus rose on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. Seven days for a week, next day, could say that's an eighth day. There's so many examples. Let me give you one other example. Um, Physical circumcision uh, for the descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament is used in the New Testament as a picture of circumcision of the heart, which is a picture of being born again, putting off your old life and having new life in Jesus. When were baby boys circumcised in the Old Testament? On the eighth day. By the way, scientists have proved that is when blood clotting is at its maximum efficacy. Interesting, eighth day. So the eight pictures new beginnings as these eight came off the ark and the world uh, was repopulated from there. Another one. When Noah had finished the ark, building it, his job wasn't quite complete. The Lord instructed him to, in chapter 6, to pitch it with pitch or cover it with pitch. Pitch being a sort of tar-like substance that uh, has waterproof properties. Actually, it has two properties. Not only is it waterproof, so the waters of judgment couldn't seep into the ark as the ark rode upon the waters, uh, it also has been proven that it uh, gives strength against impact damage as well. So that's why he was told to pitch it with pitch. The word used for pitch in the Hebrew there is an unusual one, kafar, and it's translated elsewhere, atonement, as in the day of atonement. So it's also a picture of forgiveness. 
How can we relate this to us today? How do we get forgiveness by the blood of Jesus? The pitch is a symbol of the blood of Jesus in that respect, that cleanses us from all sin, that means we will not suffer the wrath to come, that means we get eternal life through the sacrifice of his son. Paul says in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Just as Noah was, we shall be. The next one, I've got a slide up here. Okay, on the left there, you might say, what's that? That is a raven. Now, I was thrilled uh, walking my dog along the cliffs the last couple of years that there's been a pair of ravens on the cliffs at Telscombe. Now, ravens normally are mountain northern bird, but they are ravens, and I've checked it out. There's a number of ways you can tell. If you saw it, you'd just think, oh, it's me, that crow's big. Well, it's actually a raven. Okay? Now, the raven was sent out and didn't return. How did it survive? I mean, it was some time before the dove could go out and feel it was safe. Well, it survived probably standing on floating mats of vegetation and eating carrion. Its cousin, the carrion crow, is called a carrion crow because it eats dead flesh. So it would have survived. So in a sense, the raven was a picture of death. Right? It wasn't yet ready to repopulate with new life. Whereas the dove, I tend to think it was like the one in the top right, um, but I put the one on the bottom left because that's the doves I loved seeing. Uh, collared doves. Lovely, lovely creatures, um, which you'll see around here. But the dove was a picture of new life. It brought back the olive leaf, didn't it? The first sprouting of new life. Oh, and it's no accident that the Holy Spirit is represented as a dove in the New Testament. The dove of peace. The dove of peace with God. So there you are. Uh, the new life was given in Jesus and not death. One of the verses that hit me a few years ago um, is in Genesis 7.16, where it says that as they went on the ark, and I picture Noah going on last, you know, being the caring dad of the family. It says that when they went on the ark, it's an extraordinary verse, Genesis 7.16, the Lord shut him in. I saw a film version once called In the Beginning. It was brilliantly done. It actually shows, I don't know how he did it and what it was, but it shows the door closed and being bolted with nothing to see who was doing it. The Lord sealed him in in some ways. And what, what does that teach us? Well, Hebrews 7 says, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, completing the job of your faith. It's a picture that what Jesus has started in you he is well able to complete. He's able to save you to the uttermost, as the scriptures say. And I'm going to end with one final thought here, is that Jesus is the ultimate ark. He is the ultimate place of safety. Believing in Jesus, you are safe from the wrath to come, and you will inherit eternal life and bliss of the presence of the Lord because of what he's done. Amen.